0: a woo a hand clap, or a high-fiver. I kind of like the high-five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At ChumbaCasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino-style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses, so don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW group. prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.
1: This is 20 Questions on Deadline, and I'm Antonia Blythe, Senior Awards Editor. My guest this week is Cheryl Strayed. In 2012, she published her memoir, Wild, which became a number one New York Times bestseller and was then made into an Oscar-nominated film starring Reese Witherspoon and Laura Dern. Strayed has also been a longtime advice columnist called Dear Sugar, and she collated some of those columns into her book, Tiny Beautiful Things, which is now a new Hulu series starring Katherine Hahn as Claire. An advice columnist whose own life is a total mess, Cheryl Strayed. Welcome to Twenty Questions on Deadline. I get the feeling, you know, as a writer, that you constantly have a rhetoric, a narrative in your head, um, you know, the voice in in, on your shoulder. And I recently was listening to a podcast, a scientific podcast, that said that some people don't have a voice in their head. Can you imagine? I don't even know if I believe that.
0: What's what's happening? What, How do they know what to worry about? What did they say about that? I mean, I honestly... That really surprises me. Right. Because I often, honestly, in my work as Dear Sugar, I, I refer to that voice in our heads. I even have a name for that voice in our head. What's do you want to hear it? Yes. It's yeah. called your it's. Well, well, there's there's a couple of voices. The The one... That, that is hard for a lot of us that, that leads us down the wrong path is called your it's. It's your inner terrible someone, okay? <laughs> it's. <laughs> it's your it's talking. And then there, you know, b- below that voice, if you're brave enough to sort of say to your it's, take a seat at the table, welcome, you know, to, welcome to my head, but you're, you're there, but you're not going to be my ruler. We get past your it's to that deep inner voice that your wise inner sage and I whiz. absolutely whiz <laughs> the it's and the it's I have both of those voices in my head. And I really do think that that we all do. Don't you? I mean, what yeah. what did these so called scientists say?
1: I well, actually, I the, sci- the science behind it is a bit iffy, in my opinion, because how can you actually define that? I don't really know. I think they, they, they had questioned a group of people. Again, I can't vouch for the veracity of a quote unquote study mm-hmm. that I know nothing about really. But the idea was that when people were asked how they formed memories or how they recalled things, it wasn't with a narrative in some people. It was just pictures or flashes. Mm-hmm there wasn't a through line, there's no storytelling in their head. Hmm. All I do all day is tell stories in my head. Yeah. And I thought everyone did,
0: and now I'm wondering how those people get through the day. I (laughs) know, but you know, I think that, now that I believe, which I think is a little different than saying that you don't have that inner voice, you Mm. know. I mean, uh, To me, I do think that people absolutely construct memories differently. I remember, when I asked, this might be a little X-rated for your podcast. No, no, go for it. When I was um, first falling in love with my husband, my husband Brian, I was really curious about his his inner life, his sexual, his erotic inner life, mm-hmm. and I wanted him to tell me like, what does he think about when he fantasizes? Like, actually, like, do you think of a story? Like, do you do you run a kind of film in your mind? Or do you have those flashes of images? Because I have the I have like a movie in my mind, mm. and he said, "No, no, it's just images. It's like a fl- flash of images. There's no story." And I thought that was really interesting. Um, that's it. That's fascinating because that goes
1: also goes back to sort of gendered uh, right. sexuality stuff. Visual, like the the old adage that men are visual and and women need a story, you know, whether or not that's accurate but it does speak to that yeah it's totally
0: accurate for me i mean i could look at pictures of naked men all day and not feel anything yeah that's why that's why the um... i mean i'm more turned on by like a turkey sandwich than (laughs) pictures of naked men um but stories absolutely that's that's where that's where the juice is yeah. <laughs> See what such- like, what is this podcast again? I don't know, but let's just make our own podcast out of whatever <laughs> we, we, we want to talk about. It a new, it's like, uh, you know two women talking talking yeah. about sex. Yeah. Two
1: two women talking about everything, all <laughs> the
0: everything. time. But really, what we're talking about is the mind. Mm-hmm. Um, even though this, you know, we're applying it to our erotic imagination, I do think that that you're right that that we have other. Um, that the, our brains work differently. And some of that is because of the hormones that we have in our bodies and some of it is maybe the histories we have or or the strengths we have. I have always been a storyteller. I have always been somebody who imagined stories and, and who also in so many ways constructed my own experiences to harness my own memories into story form.
1: Hmm. It's, you know, it's the Joan Didion isn't it of we tell ourselves stories in order to live so the way that we feel about ourselves is a construct it's also subjective and it's still, you view your memories through the lens of of your opinion of yourself and and that's why memory is kind of unreliable in some ways because it it's sort of so so subjective two different people will remember totally different things about the same event
0: yeah and and I mean think too. It's, or, or it's the opposite in some deep, radical way. Um, if we will allow many subjective views of a single story, it's the, it's the most profoundly reliable story of all. Because yeah. what we're doing is we're saying there's not one version of events that we'll take as the singular truth. That, and then even within yourself, right? I, and this is something I, I, do, I talk about a lot in my work, uh, as dear sugar, is that two two opposing things can be true at the same time. Mm-hmm. You can love your partner deeply, profoundly, and treasure them in your life, and want to end that relationship. You can want to quit your job and and take a new job, and you can also be very conflicted about it. you You can want to stay and and go at the same time. And so I think that 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 so much of the expansion, for me as, as a writer, but also as a human. You know, uh, the expansion of our ability to hold many stories as truth in the same hand is a really kind of more evolved and interesting way to live and think and write.
1: Isn't that the key to everything, essentially? Can you run for president, please? Because <laughs> what we need is for everyone to understand that everybody's reality
0: is different, period. Right. Isn't that everything? And absolutely, and that we have compassion for people when we hear their story, mm. right? Yeah. So I mean, there, and, and for whatever reason, it's been very hard for us, I think, as a culture and a society, to to be able to hold two stories. You know, the 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 shop, the small shop owner who has been the victim of crime tells one story, and then the person who has perpetrated that crime tells another story. And that there is I mean, that just that's just an example that came to my mind. and then they're they're both they're both telling the truth about, you know what what has harmed them and what they need, why they do why they do or think the way they do. And if we can somehow, like I think welcome as many people to the table of any sort of problem we have and hear their stories and honor them and 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 allow that one story, one perspective doesn't necessarily negate the other that in fact if we can we can welcome them both a deeper truth can be found
1: Mm. I think humans are very prone to black and white thinking Mm -hmm. because they want certainty they need to be given parameters it's anxiety it's It's the discomfort of uncertainty, so we pick a lane. Yeah. Or a a truth, whatever that means. Um, You mentioned Dear Sugars, and I do wanna talk a little bit about Tiny Beautiful Things, your new Hulu series. I know we talked recently about this a bit, and one of the things I took away from our conversation was how crazy it is that this show is essentially your real past, because it looks over the stories you told in your columns mm-hmm. as Dear Sugar, but there's also a sort of new narrative as Claire, a version of you, played by Katherine Hahn. She's so brilliant. I love her. Yeah. Um, and this new version of you, we were talking the other day with your executive producer and writer, Liz Tigelaar too, that this is like a sliding doors you right. who didn't, walk the Pacific Crest Trail and didn't publish Wild and didn't make a movie Uh with Reese Witherspoon starring as you. Uh, What's it like seeing this kind of construct of who you might have been?
0: Well, it's been really interesting. And I knew pretty instinctually from the start that it wasn't going to be interesting for us to construct this, this woman who writes this anonymous advice column, like, like I did, I still write the Dear Sugar column, but no longer anonymously, you know, it wasn't going to be interesting if she was me. But she needed to be me in an essential way. She needed to have these formative experiences that I had in my in my childhood and my youth and she went in a different direction. As you say, as Liz Tiglar always says, you know, it's, okay, our, our sugar is like Cheryl. She didn't like the PCT. She didn't publish her, her first book, Torch, her second book, Wild, you know, all of the things that's, that have happened to my life, essentially after about my kind of mid to late 20s, right? And so I feel this wonderful kindred feeling towards Claire, our, our character that Catherine Hahn plays so beautifully. We have a lot in common. But she she's messier me. than you. She's, me- she's way <laughs> messier. Well, and I think, you know, maybe it's not that she's messier than me because, I mean, that's the thing is, I think most of us are pretty messy. Oh, yes, Right? You know, that, yeah. That it, of course, we show a certain face to the world, but then we're like, you know, running around our house looking for the keys or, you know, arguing with our, our spouses or whatever. All of that, the, the hilarity and chaos of life is ever present, I think, in my life. It probably always will be. And yet... I think the, the real difference is she didn't answer that deep call within her. I have wanted, I have felt, I was going to say I've wanted to be a writer all my life, but that's not even an accurate statement. I have felt the call to be a writer. I have felt that a writer is who I am, not what I do. All of, you know, since I was very young, since I learned how to read. And, and so there was a certain point in my 20s that I had to take that very seriously and, and make decisions to, to to support, to nurture that, to, to nurture that, you know, to answer that call. And what Claire did, our character of Claire, she said, okay, I want to be a writer, but I'm going to set this aside. I'm going to set this aside for all of these reasons. And it really set her off track. She went down the wrong path because she wasn't doing what she's here to do. And there's where our lives have diverged. And we got to, you know, over the course of a season, this isn't really a spoiler, but, you know, so much of what she's grappling with in deciding to take on this Dear Sugar Advice column is finding her way back to her writing. And through writing that column, she realizes it's time for her to do it more seriously, the way I did at the end of my 20s. You know, everything you just said speaks to
1: so many profound thoughts and things that come up. For me, when I read your work, the road less traveled, the road not taken, living with regret, living with the alternative version of yourself that you'll never know. The ghost Um, ship that didn't carry us, one of the
0: Dear Sugar columns is called, and one of the episodes as well.
1: Yeah, so, you just kind of answered my first of the 20 questions, which was when did you know you wanted to be a writer? And you talk about feeling the cool. And when you learned to read,
0: do you remember what it was? Do you remember the time? I remember it exactly, which I which is amazing to me because it was, I didn't know what the word epiphany meant at the time, but when I looked back on it, I realized that was my first epiphany. So I was about six or seven. I was living in Minnesota with my my two siblings and my mom, who was a single mom, at the time. And we didn't go to church; we weren't religious. But I had spent the night with a friend, on a Saturday night. And when we woke up, we were, her family went to church, so I went with them, and my friend and I were sent to the little Sunday school. And the teacher handed out these these little booklets. It was the '70s, and so they were, these were these little chapbooks that were watercolor paintings of birds and butterflies and flowers, and to accompany these Im- Im- images were these little poems about the wonder of nature and the beauty of nature. And I remember reading, you know, the, the pictures were fine, but the words absolutely pierced me. My young little heart, mm-hmm. I just, I remember so distinctly being astonished that that somebody could could use words to create that kind of piercing beauty within me. I I was genuinely astonished by it. And I really, it took me a couple decades, honestly, after that to realize that somebody like me could be a writer. Maybe it was when I was about 19 or 20, I realized, okay, somebody like me can be a writer. But all through my youth, I thought, okay, that feeling that I had when I read that chapbook, that is what I want to, I want other, I want to make that feeling in somebody else through words. So I really immediately started writing stories all through my childhood and teenage years. I would just write stories. But, but I, I've, I truly honestly felt that in order for me to become a writer, what I needed first was to have a glamorous life what I thought of as a, a, a life worthy of literature and to me that meant to be cosmopolitan you know I grew up in a, in a house that wasn't full of educated people in a community that wasn't you know people who loved books and had famous lives or had even very big accomplishments I you know graduated from high school from this place called in this town called McGregor Minnesota um, the population is 400 people. I grew up 20 miles away from that town in the woods in a house without indoor plumbing. And so wow. I thought, well, who is going to want to read my stories? And I really did have this idea that I needed to go and like live in New York City and then accumulate a life that I could write about. And then by the time I went to school, I went to college when I was 17, and immediately my world changed. A lot of people ask me, after wild was published and my life kind of exploded and this movie was made and everything happened they would say oh hasn't your life changed so much and i always say you know when my life changed is when i went to college because suddenly i was in the company of people who wrote books my professors my you know the, my, my english professor was like yeah here are the three books of poetry i've published and i just it was the first time that i understood that just like ordinary humans could do such a thing. And I was, that's when I signed on forever. You kind of answered my second question
1: in a way, which was when you don't find yourself surrounded by people who do what you do now, usually most people require some sort of blueprint, some person that shows them that this is a thing that people do. Like the other day I had um, someone on the podcast who, it was Quinta Brunson, actually I was interviewing um, her for something yeah. else, and she was talking about how a friend, her, her father's boss's daughter was a TV writer, and that's how she got it in her head, oh that's a job you can do, a, a person can do that, a normal person, yeah. anyone can do it. You know, you don't need to be given it on a plate. So was there a person in college, was there a specific person?
0: Yeah, it was really all of my professors, but I think that the the first time that that it deeply landed in my heart is I took, the summer I was 20, I took a class taught by the poet Michael Dennis Brown at the University of Minnesota. And he was the real deal. You know, he was a professor who also wrote beautiful books of poetry. And it was so, like, his life's work was so present and palpable to me that I could see it I could see a path and I remember he had office hours and I went at the end of the class you know to his office hours and I said I think I think I want to major in creative writing you know and he said well just why don't you just hang out with it for a while see how it goes you know just write write and see what you feel and what you think but it was such a revolutionary time for me to be awakened in that way, to see somebody doing what I wanted to spend my life doing. And of course, I didn't, I didn't stay a poet. I, I quickly became a prose writer. Just I have too many words I want to put on the page, you know. <laughs> po- poetry won't give me enough. But it was the beginning of, a, of really what the, the path that has led me here to you and to the life I have now.
1: What's one of your favorite memories?
0: Gosh, that is such a great question. That's such a great question. Um, And I think I need to trust uh, what immediately flashed into my mind when you said it, which is, you know, it's, 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 isn't it interesting where those answers come from sometimes? Some, not something I thought of. Some ephemeral place just pops up. Yeah. Yeah. So what I was gonna tell you is, um, so I, I, when I was living in Minnesota, my family didn't have much money. And by the time I was about 10 or 11, my mother had married my stepfather. And w- w- even though we didn't have money, my family had such a happy life. You know, we made so much fun. And so we would very often go camping on the weekends, camping and canoeing. I remember one year with their like tax returns, they had like $300 and they bought two canoes. And we were a family of five. And so th- three would be in one canoe and two in the other. And we would go on these these camping trips and on, on the many lakes and rivers in Minnesota. And just the, the, the fun of that and the agony of that, you know, the times you'd be, it'd be pouring down rain and you'd be in some terrible tent, you know, that, that was leaking. But it was so much joy. And it really is one of my favorite memories of my youth. Oh,
1: that's so sweet. Yeah, there's something so special about those sort of almost adversity experiences where you know you talk about being stuck in the rain in a tent that stuff it really it, it really sticks it means something
0: i don't know i call it retrospective fun <laughs> uh, it's the best kind <laughs> yeah. of fun that's so good <laughs> and you know i get asked about this kind of thing a lot because of wild which is mm. of course about my hike on the pct on the pacific crest trail yeah and so much of that kind of experience, anyone who goes backpacking can <laughs> will be nodding their heads, is that it's not actually very fun in the moment. In the <laughs> moment, it's physically agonizing sometimes, it, it searingly hot or freezing cold, or really, you just can't wait to get, you know, to the the mountaintop or the campsite or wherever you're going so you can just like sit down and have a cheeseburger um but then you do it and you think wow that was really one of the best things i've ever done and and i think travel is often that right before we take a trip we imagine things in this really idealized way but then later after the trip what are what are the stories we tell again and again they're the 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 hardships, the times that you ate the wrong thing in Guatemala and thought you were going to die, you know, in a bathroom, or um, you never did get your luggage on your seven week trip in Europe, like happened to me last summer. I mean, that's the story. Last summer, I went to Europe for seven weeks. I got COVID and my luggage was lost the whole time.
1: And for seven weeks, they couldn't find your bag? Are you serious? Uh,
0: (laughs) I knew where it was. They just couldn't get it to me. But that's, I mean, that's the story I tell of that trip. It's not yeah. like, well, one time I went, you know, in Vienna, it was so pretty to walk around. I mean, nobody wants to hear that. They, oh, God. They want to hear. So so I call it retrospective fun. And I think a lot of life is about that. I mean, same with parenting. You know, the, the things you laugh about when it comes to the, you know, the many adventures of family life are the things that usually went wrong rather than right.
1: God, that's so brilliant. I. It's so true. Like the stories I tell of backpacking are things like, getting severe tendonitis in my foot in a town in Thailand that was flooded up to the second story of all the houses and trying to get to a hospital I on hear a that motorbike.
0: Story. I mean, it's an amazing story. And you laugh about it now. Even though it's at the classic. time you were like... What am I going to do? This is terrible. It's a disaster. But then th- that's your best memory of the It's that It's adventure, trip. isn't it? Yeah. Adversity and adventure. Retrospective fun. I'm yes. telling you, it's a thing. You've got a trademark. I know. That, I've, I've, along with your right. whiz
1: and what was the other one? The terrible it's, person. Inner in in terrible someone.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh, what is your greatest fear?
0: Oh, it's absolutely that something, some harm would come to my children. There's no. I think once you have kids, it's like, I remember my first birthday after I became a mother, I was like, okay, now for the rest of my life, at, on every birthday cake, every time I blow out the candles, my wish will always be the same. It will always be that my children are, are safe and happy and that they thrive. And likewise, that fear you know, is, is some harm coming to them. You know, my, my best friend
1: in England said to me when she had her second child, she said, well, now I'm screwed because if my if something happens to my first child, I'll want to die. But I'm not allowed because I've got another one.
0: That's right. I know. That's so true. Though I have to say, I, I've also been a longtime cat lover. I, before I had kids, I felt that way about my two cats. You know? <laughs> I feel like that about my so, dog. So, Do you? Yeah. Yes. Oh, I know.
1: What is the secret to staying happily married? And before you go, oh my god, there's a million different things, you know, it depends on the person and all that.
0: Maybe, what's your secret? My secret? Yeah, I've, I've put in some time with, with my husband. We met in 1995, nine days after I finished my hike on the Pacific Crest Trail, and here we are all these years later. We got married in 1999, so I guess in August it will be 24 years. And the secret to our happiness um, is, is that we really, uh, we really admire each other. Mm. There is, in my mind, no better person than my sweet husband, Brian Lindstrom, and he feels the same way about me. I have so much admiration and, and respect for him, and I'll always be rooting for him. You know, I, I, I really just am so profoundly on his side, and he is on mine. And that's another way of saying that we're best friends, but I think you can be best friends without that. And I, and I think for us that, that, that sense of just like, I just really, really like you. in addition to really loving you has, has gotten us through a lot of stuff. This doesn't mean we don't argue. This doesn't mean we don't have, there are so many, if you said to me, make a list of the annoying things about Brian, I could happily give you one. (laughs) (laughs) And he could happily write one as well. But really, ultimately, I just think he's an extraordinary person. And I just feel, honestly, every day so lucky that I get to spend my life with him. I didn't believe that that was possible. I I didn't understand that I could actually um, have a marriage that lasted this long that, that could be this happy. So it's just a lot of it is just like I feel like I hit the jackpot.
1: Oh, I love that. You know, when you talk about admiration, it's sort of hand in hand with respect, I think. And it made me think of a conversation uh, that I read with a marriage therapist who said, I always know within a few minutes whether they're gonna make it or not. And you you think, well, what is it, what is it? And it's really simple. If she saw one of them roll their eyes, they were done. Oh my goodness. And I think that's so, so accurate, don't you?
0: Yeah, I think I think disdain is really destructive. Mm-hmm. And of course, we all feel that occasionally for our partners, but I think that if you start to feel that a lot, it it does it, it eats away at that admiration. Mm-hmm. Because they are kind of like opposite things, aren't they? Right? Yeah. And I and I think too in my own marriage when I have felt that way, like the way to to sort of stop that is to talk about it, to bring it To the forefront, because that kind of eye rolling gesture is like it's it's not just about a feeling that you have about your partner. It's also you containing it in your body rather than verbalizing it and saying, here's what I'm feeling in response to what you just did or said.
1: Yeah. You've already shut the door
0: if you're rolling. That's right. right? Yeah. You've given up.
1: Yeah. What advice would you give your younger self? And I love how Tiny Beautiful Things touches on this. You know, the, your nose is fine. You know, <laughs> stop worrying about this. I love that. Tell us what advice you give your younger self.
0: Well, I love that, you know, the title column of Tiny Beautiful Things is, is a letter to my younger self. Somebody wrote to me and said, what advice would you give? And I wrote that column, which is really a, a, ultimately a list of many things I would tell my younger self. About, about being gentler with yourself, about learning how to accept things, um, and also about learning how to keep faith and to trust that, that life, as I say in the column, is a great and continuous unfolding. And everything you want um, isn't available to you right now. But if you keep working and you keep the faith and you keep leading with heart and intelligence, You're going to get there. You're going to get those. You you will become that that person you yearn inside to become. And so I I think that, I mean, I just gave you a a whole bunch of uh, Mm. pieces of advice I'd give my younger self. But almost always, it isn't kind of interesting. You know, you hear a lot when people talk about um, talking to dying people. Like what they always say is, I wish I had spent more time with loved ones mm-hmm. you know they never say like I didn't finish that project at work you know or that's the money not, money or the, yeah it all goes away and I yeah. think that I hear this over and over again with advice to one's younger self is almost always people saying I would go back and say it's going to be okay I would go back and say you're good enough and and I would say be gen-, you know be gentle on yourself and I I hope that young people out there will hear that chorus and actually take it to heart it's really hard to do. Hmm.
1: You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. in your life that you wish you had done, but it maybe feels too late
0: now? Oh gosh, that is, your your questions are great. Oh, <laughs> well, thank you. Yeah, absolutely, that's what's interesting. I'm 54 and I have really just in the last maybe five or seven years started to think like, wait, okay, <laughs> like am I, am I gonna ever get to do that thing? You know, or have I missed that opportunity now? Um, I, you know, just one of the, I, I love getting older. And honestly, I, call, I feel like I've entered what I call my crone age. And I so treasure that. <laughs> what is, like,
1: what's a crone age? A crone age.
0: Well, the crone age is when you finally, you know, you, you don't have to take the advice you give your younger self. Because you live that way. That even in the hard times, you have the capacity and wisdom to tell yourself it's going to be okay. Mm. It's going to be okay even if it's hard. Even if it hurts, you can keep going. You know, just my, my knowledge of my own courage, strength, and re- resilience, it doesn't mean that I don't, you know, hurt or struggle or suffer, but I know I can get through it. And I feel like when I say crone, I think a wise woman knows that. hmm And so when I passed, you know, through into menopause a, a couple of years ago, I was like, I, I just decided to name, <laughs> I just decided to name this next half of my life. The crone age,
1: I and love it. It's just like a just little. Own it.
0: I just just thing I tell myself. But crone
1: has been a word that was so yeah weaponized against women, and I love that you're taking it back.
0: That's I totally. Cool. I have it back. It's yeah. in my arms. It's you know, and I think that and and I have so many. I, I forgot what your question was that brought me to that. Oh, oh there are things I can't yes. do. I do. What what I realize in in this era of my life is, um, when I was young, there was this sense of just like. Anything was possible. Like, I could marry anyone. I could be somebody who had, you know, eight kids or no kids. I could be somebody who um, wrote, like, this kind of book versus that kind of book. Like, it was just, I looked across the territory and the land was open. And now I have that, there's so much territory behind me that I do see, like, fewer paths. Like, I think, like, well, maybe, you know, maybe I never am going to learn how to speak French and live in Paris, you know? And that's yet, that song. At the
1: age of 37, she realized she'd never ride through Paris in a sports car
0: with a warm wind in her hair. <laughs> yeah, is it? I don't know that's song. But but And here's the thing. The minute I say that to you, I think, well, maybe I have to. Like, I, I still can, right? You still can. But it just seems like I would really have to prioritize that. And maybe I'll decide to. But, but you know, I, I also have reached an age where I think, like, well, maybe that's not going to happen for me. And that's okay, but it it does feel like, I just feel a sense of fewer paths. There's still lots of them, it's still glorious, and I'm a lot stronger and wiser and braver as I walk them. But not everything's a question anymore. I've answered a lot of things with my life. Mm. Oh, I love that, you've answered them with your life.
1: What about, what is your most treasured possession?
0: Okay, hmm. Well, I would say, for sure, it has to be a photograph of my mother. Mm. I have lived longer in my life without my mother than I lived with her. She died when I was 22, and she was 45. And there are so few, you know, physical remembrances of her left. I've carried her so deeply in me and in my work. People all over the world come up to me and say my mother's name to me, Bobby, it's my daughter's name too. Mm. They say her name to me because I've written about her and they love her because I've made them fall in love with her in my books. And so I've brought her into my life in, in all of the, ima- in those in those sort of creative ways that I can. But when it comes right down to it, I have very little in terms of physical objects that, that were hers or that are her. And so the I, I have several photographs of my mom, but I have this one in particular that was taken on my 22nd birthday, and little did we know she would die exactly six months later. And it's this beautiful black and white photo of my mom. And I, and I, I yeah, if my house were burning down, I would grab that. Mm-hmm. If all the living beings were out, that's what I would grab and run.
1: I feel like we see some of that era right before Bobby passed away in Tiny Beautiful Things when she gifts the coat. There's a really moving scene where Claire in the present day is remembering how she didn't appreciate the coat. And so I'm thinking about that, the scene where they're celebrating and she gives her the coat mm-hmm. when they're when you're young. Yeah. Um, or rather, Claire is young, where but it's Sarah you. Pidgeon
0: as Claire, yeah. Yeah,
1: she's so great. Um, when you tell that story, that's what I have in my head.
0: Yes, so. that story, I mean, that, it's um, astonishing to me that that story is in the show because it was something that's a great example of a way that I couldn't for years be gentle with myself when I got that coat on the you know at Christmas I was 22 I was at the height of my youthful arrogance my mom wasn't sick at the time and she gave me this coat that I didn't like and instead of saying thank you I sort of I was like, Isn't it too long? isn't it too puffy?' And my mom was like well i uh, I thought you would love it. you know just the classic mm-hmm. not the quite quite the right thing. and then she died a few months later and i I was tormented I was tormented that the last gift my mother gave me was one that I didn't meet with gratitude now, of course the the old me, the crone me, (laughs) can look back and say, oh, honey, you know, I can say honestly what I know my mother thought, which is, oh, honey, it's okay. You know, you're young. You know, you didn't know that this would be the last gift I gave you. It's okay. You messed up that one time. And then you learn that lesson about gratitude that you'll never forget for the rest of your life. Mm
1: -hmm. Let go
0: of that regret and accept it for the gift that it is, is what I would tell my young self. And I and it's beautiful. It's so healing and restorative to me, to see that reenacted. Sarah Pigeon and Merritt Weaver, play oh, Frankie. So you know, Merritt Weaver plays Frankie, the my mom character, and Sarah Pigeon plays me. And so much of what Sarah does in the show is straight from my life in ways like that.
1: Mm. I just love Merritt as well. She's a favorite. She's so talented. She's so special. Yeah. she's amazing. When and where are you at your happiest?
0: Oh, there are all kinds of different kinds of happiness. But I think that I'm the most happy when I can be completely absorbed in what I'm doing. And I forget that that sense of time or even that sense of being, um, you know, like uh, that I am part of the world rather than separate from it. I reach that when I'm writing. When it's I a flow really state, right? Into that flow state. Mm. That is just such an amazing place where you look up and it's like, wow, it's been three hours. I you think, forgot but, about like, food, water, exactly.
1: everything. You cease to be a human. You All just that. produce this. I mean, that is magic. Um, and it, it makes me kind of wonder about your higher self. Are you in this other plane of existence in those moments? Where does your ego go? I don't know.
0: I think. I mean, I've, I'm have i a longtime believer that there is some aspect uh, and I don't know what the word is for it so I'm just going to use the word magic yeah that some that some magic thing happens that is beyond my consciousness when I'm writing in that kind of state Mm -hmm. and it is a part of my writing process I I venture into the unknown I start to write I, I call it intuitive writing I begin with something and then I trust where that thing takes me and to get to that place you do have to get into that flow state. You do have to lose the world. So it's really kind of interesting to me that I just said to you, that's when I'm the happiest because so then it is that kind of ultimate feeling of like joy. It's like surrendering to um, surrendering to the ways that you're, the places creativity can take you. It's a really profound place. Now, of course, I'm also just perfectly happy when I get to do things like at the end of the day, like snuggle up on the couch with my husband and watch like a really great television show or something, as <laughs> a different kind of happiness. Yeah. Or do something fun with friends or family or my kids or people I love. That's that's an, another brand of happiness which I treasure. Are you writing anything at the moment? I am. I'm working on my next book, which is another memoir, and I hate to talk about like what it's about because it's like it never ends up being. What I write. So I'm working on that. And I'm also doing, you know, what was so interesting to me. I was in the writer's room um, on Tiny Beautiful Things, part of the writing staff, really learned about, a lot about television writing. And so, and, and also during the pandemic, I was hired to write a, a screenplay about Janice Chaplin, which was really, really? fun. Yeah. So I've, I've delved into TV and film writing. And I've really enjoyed that. My All of my life, as both a human and writer, I feel like my job is always to be the apprentice. You know, I, I love to write books that will always be my first love, but I also want to learn new things. Mm-hmm. And so to expand my... Um, the ways that I tell story, the ways that my writing lives in the world is super exciting to me. So I have, I have a little foot in, in uh, TV and film writing now too.
1: What's happening with Janice Joplin?
0: So Janice is just in development and it's a film that has been trying to be made for some time now. And I really had the opportunity to do a deep dive into her life. And really, there's so much about Janice that because she's a rock and roll icon, um, that we think we know, right? And what I learned in the couple of years that I spent in her company as, as the person who was trying to bring her, her life to the page is what a complicated, fascinating, powerful woman she is and all the ways that her story is so relevant to us still today. And so I'm hoping that that gets made. It's, it's winding its way down the path and I have a sense that it will come to light at some point. And I'm really excited about that.
1: Wow, me too, yeah. I don't know enough about her, but um, in reading Patti Smith's book, Just mm-hmm, Kids, mm-hmm. it's like that
0: world. It's so fascinating. Well, yeah, and that's one thing I found to be so fascinating in, in telling, there was no way to tell the story of Janice Joplin without telling the story of the culture mm. at that time and place. About the San Francisco Sound that she was very much a part of, this whole group of musicians and bands who changed, uh, who changed music as we know it, Um, and you know the way that she rose to prominence really, uh, literally on the same stage that Jimi Hendrix did, and that these two icons who who um, very much became popular at the same time, and then of course died within just a few weeks of each other. Um, There are so many stories, I'm saying, that are within Janice's Janice's story that are about not just her, but about music and other musicians and the culture and race and and ambition. You know, she was wildly ambitious. She always said she wanted to be the greatest, and she was. Mm. God, I really want that movie to get made
1: immediately. I do too. (laughs) Okay, what is the trait? you most deplore in other people and this is I'm taking questions from the Proust questionnaire if you know what that is oh I don't what is that oh so Proust I think about oh I'm gonna mess up the years but I think the early 1800s uh I need to google that um (laughs) he was asked by a friend some sort of light basic life questions and they are when are you at your happiest what's your greatest fear mm-hmm. where what's misery to you and so on and it became known as the Proust questionnaire oh, and now wow. Vanity Fair does a Proust questionnaire and and it's become a sort of popular set of questions and I love them awesome they're perfect
0: questions so some of them are scattered I know here. I know immediately my answer to that question All right. it's without any doubt snobbery Oh. I think snobbery is the most boring, useless thing <laughs> in the whole world. And it denies any, um, I mean, it's so ignorant because it denies any knowledge of history and the ways that greatness comes from so many places, high and low, and all in between. And the minute you're you know, snobbish about something is the minute you shut the door um, on all kinds of beauty and truth and experience. And I mm. never, never want to be that way. And when, when other people are that way, I, I kind of try to go to the other side of the room. <laughs>
1: <laughs> How about this one? If you could live anywhere in the world, where would it be?
0: Well, you know, um, oh, gosh, I do know the answer. I was going to say, <laughs> well, Portland, Oregon, because that's where I live and I love my home. And I do. Yeah. But New Zealand. Oh. Ugh, New Zealand is the perfect country. Have you been to New Zealand?
1: I have not, okay. sadly.
0: It, it's so far away is the only problem. I would I would move to New Zealand tomorrow if it weren't like 3,000 years to fly <laughs> there. It's so far away. But it's so beautiful. I went there with my family in 2017, and we hiked a, a couple of the trails. They have these great walks of New Zealand. It's, it's like, as my husband said, it's like Oregon, Alaska, and Hawaii had a baby, and that's New Zealand. That's what it looks like. <laughs> and it's just a beautiful beautiful place with wonderful people and great food and I mean I just I love it I would move to New Zealand if it could just get a little closer to right yeah
1: (laughs) what is your motto
0: oh that's a great question I keep saying that's a great question you're asking I suppose that's your job to ask great questions
1: well I appreciate you saying it because not everyone's that nice
0: (laughs) really (laughs) um my grandmother, my mother's mother, used to always say, love many, like, or sorry, I screwed it up. My mother's mother, my grandmother, used to say, like many, love few, and always paddle your own canoe. Oh, and, that's good. Isn't that good? And I thought that that was, especially the always paddle your own canoe piece of the advice, because I, I love many. I don't just like many, I love many. But always paddle your own canoe. She told this to me when I was a child. And there was something that, that it rung a bell of truth in me, even then. Because I did feel like the way that I'm going to make my way in this world is going to necessitate that, the, that I'm the you know, captain of the ship, that I'm paddling my own boat, that I am the agent of my own life. And that isn't wrong. That has, that has served me all of my life to realize that if, if I was going to get there, I was going to have to walk there myself. Mm. Or
1: paddle. Or paddle. You know, my grandmother's advice was, lovey men's brains are in their knickers. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Which, oh, you know. Oh, but, but I have to say, okay, since we're speaking of our grandmothers, that's, that's the truth, right? She, she's also... If you said, "What's the worst advice?" like that could be one of your twenty questions. What's the worst advice? Oh yeah, ever, please. Okay, the worst advice I ever got from the same woman who said <laughs> this, you know, the like connecting. many, love you, and yeah. was this: never, when you get married, Cheryl, never, ever, ever, be fully naked in front of your husband. She did not. She said that. She said never take off all your clothes in front of your husband. You need to maintain you know a mystery yes oh my and I'm God. Like, but I'm like okay so never and I just think my poor grandfather <gasps> never saw at least oh. a naked woman in the form of her but she was like always have like a little robe on or a shirt or something and I was 14 when she told me this advice and even then I thought this is very bad advice <laughs> did you tell your mom I don't remember. I don't remember. You know, I think I probably did. And my mo- my mother would have immediately said that's really bad advice. Yeah. My mother was very candid and frank with me about sex and the body and everything. Thankfully.
1: What is your idea of absolute misery in terms of an experience?
0: I think the hardest thing ever is having to pretend to be one way and to feel inside the other. You know, there's so much suffering and agony and pain involved in feeling sad inside or or afraid or, you know, disappointed and then having to pretend like everything's great and everything's happy and everything's smooth. You know, I I think that I have experienced this in my own life and also in all the people who write to me seeking advice in my work as Sugar that the, the most human suffering is when like your insides don't match the outsides mm. because when you have to like one of the things i say you know as sugar is ultimately you can't fake the core that the truth will always win out and the longer you try to fake it the longer you extend your own suffering or misery
1: yeah self betrayal is is really at the root of it isn't it it's that whether you're covering up misery and pretending to be happy, or pretending to like something that you don't like, yeah, just in general, or going along with a group of friends when you're younger and you don't really like the way yeah. they are, and, and there's so much of are. that in life, yeah. right? And getting older, to me, it's like learning not to betray yourself, even if you lose all the people. That's right. Because you have to be, you're paddling your own canoe. You're paddling your own, <laughs> own
0: canoe. And to be transparent, you know, I would so much rather uh, I mean I try that, I tell the truth as often as possible mm. and I think that that leads to such uh, l- l- like you have a sense of alignment like the person that you present to others is the person you are mm. and um, you know that's I I, I love and th- of course I do this in my work as well my work is very honest to a degree that a lot of people will say how could you how could you tell those truths about your life and I'm like well you know it makes it makes conversation easy because I've never having I never have to really hide anything. It's like I've already told you the worst thing about myself. I wrote it and published it in a book. Yeah.
1: No, I love that. I think that if everyone just owned their truth, it's like we were saying when we were talking the other day and Liz was there and Catherine Hahn was there. You know, everyone's kind of cracking up and we just don't talk about it. You know, and when I I say cracking up, I mean everybody feels that they're they're sort of, you know, not in their best self. Right. And I I went a few years ago to a thing called the Hoffman Process. I don't know if you've heard of that. I have, yeah. It's fantastic. It's this sort of retreat where you just leave your phone and it's a great level. You're not allowed to say what your real name is or where you work or anything. Wow. It's a fantastic place. And... You know, my friends that I still have from that experience, we always just tell each other the truth and it's so great. And now you know their names? Oh, yeah. (laughs) On the last day, you get to say your real name and uh, what you do on the very last day.
0: And you have those bonds in part because you were your true self, your true vulnerable self with them. And, Mm. And it was such an intimacy accelerator, isn't it?
1: It is like I've known those people since we were babies because we just, you know, the gloves came off. You had no choice. And and I love a conversation I had with one of them, my friend Mel, and we always say, God, you know, I've always felt like shit. And she goes, so have I. I feel like shit all the time.
0: Oh, you know, and it's right. nice
1: because I think a lot of people do just feel badly a lot of the time. Yeah. Or they're anxious. or You know, and you can have... That truth, if we all told the truth, life would look very different, I think. It would. Yeah. Well, I have time for one last question. Okay. Who is your dream dinner companion,
0: living or dead? Hmm. Well, um, what I would give to have one more dinner with my dear mother... I didn't mean to set
1: you up, because I know, of course, (laughs) you've lost your mom, and she's very important. Of course.
0: You know, I would love, you know, she would be um, my dream dinner companion. But I I also, you know, when I, so she's the dead person I'd like to have dinner with. Yeah. The living person, my favorite writer is Alice Mm Munro. She's this extraordinary, I mean, she won the Nobel Prize for Literature several, several years ago, and I have loved her since I found her in a used bookstore. I found one of her books when I was like 19 or 20. What, and was, it, the,
1: what was that book?
0: Um, it was called Dance of the Happy Shades, um, one of her first books. It might be her first book. And, and I really uh, did that thing. You asked me earlier if there was anyone who showed me in some way that I could be a writer. And, and I told you about Michael Dennis Brown, who was a, a real person who, I, who taught a class I took, and he changed my life. But I would say Alice Monroe did that same thing, but only through her books. Mm. Because in her writing, I saw myself. She's, she's older than me. She's in her mid-80s now, and um, so of a different generation. But the stories she told worse they pierced me that the same way that chapbook at the Sunday school did and they not only pierced me with their beauty but they, they I recognized myself in the life she wrote about the the fictional characters the community that she wrote about in uh, you know rural ontario wasn't so different from my rural minnesota and i thought my goodness this, this girl from the working class from the the, the farms and the, the the woods of ontario if she can write like this I can too and what I, I would just love to I would love to talk to her she's mm. a, she's been so important and meaningful in my life and
1: can we make that happen
0: <laughs> I would love that you know um we did exchange a letter you did yeah when I the first the first contest I won back in my 20s I Wrote a short story called "The House with the Horse and the Blue Canoe." It was the first short story I'd ever written. I entered a contest, and I won this contest. the The guy called me up. He called me up from the U.K. and he said, "You won, and you're going to get fifteen hundred dollars, which to me was, I mean, that was just an absolute fortune. And your story will be published in this anthology of of prize-winning stories. And he said, "I'll send you two copies." one for yourself and one for your mom. And I got off the phone, and my mom was dead by then. And I just howled. Mm. I just howled because I realized that, that all of my life there would be the copy for my mom, that mm. I would never be able to give my mother. And so I, I, I sat down and I wrote, I mean, it's so audacious of me, but I wrote Alice Munro a letter. And I just told her how much I loved her and how much her, her work had meant to me. And I included, when I got that second copy, I included it in, you know, a little package to her. And I didn't know her address, but I knew this little town she lived in in Ontario. So And I figured, you know, she's a big famous writer. I just wrote Alice Monroe and I wrote the town, you know, Ontario.
1: That's amazing. And it got to her.
0: And within just like two weeks, she wrote me the most magnificent letter back. It's framed in my office now, the letter from Alice Monroe. And she said a lot of things, but she said, she had read my story and she said, I wouldn't change a hair on its head. She said, keep writing. And I did. That is so brilliant.
1: I just, honestly, that's really moving. I feel like you need to get together with her in person.
0: I do too. I, I went to one of her events. I wrote an essay about it called Monroe Country. Um, I went, it was in New York City, she came to read at the New Yorker Festival several years ago. I was in graduate school at the time in Syr- at Syracuse University and I took the train down to New York to see her and I was so moved when she got on stage. You know, like I used to see, as I wrote in the essay, you know you'd see that footage of the Beatles in the 60s and all those girls are like weeping and I would always see like, okay, I love the Beatles but what is going on here? That's what I did when Alice Monroe walked on the stage. <laughs> I didn't scream because it was a reading. It was a literary event. But I, I cried. I um, cried and cried and cried because I had loved her so much. And um, afterwards she did a book signing. And I kept I was in the line, I kept going to the back of the line because I kept trying to think like, what am I gonna say to this person has meant so much to me? And I realized that there was nothing I could say that would convey how much I loved her, how much her work had altered my mind in my heart and my life and so I got there I'm, I'm, I'm sort of spoiling the essay for you now there's gonna be no suspense at the on, end <laughs> please but I get I get you know it's like my turn and I just look at her I was like the last person of this long line and she looks up at me and our eyes meet and I just I just gave her a little wave and walked away oh you did? <laughs> I did. I did. I oh. couldn't. But, you know, it so was also. So she not
1: even know that it was the person. Well,
0: you know, what's, what happened is when I wrote. So years later. Okay, so I. I the letter I sent her in, her in my 20s. She wrote me this amazing letter back. Mm-hmm. I didn't respond because I was like, she gave me what I needed. I'm not going to now try to take advantage of this. And then in my 30s, I went to this New Yorker festival and didn't say hi to her. Yeah. And then. I think it was like in my late 30s, my early 40s, I wrote this essay called Monroe Country. And I wanted to publish the letter she'd written me at the beginning of the of the essay. So in order to, I needed her permission. So in order to get her permission, I contacted her agent, and I said, here's this essay I've written as an ode, really, to Alice Monroe. And her agent said, I'll give it to her. And I said, I just need her to sign this paper saying she, I can publish the letter she wrote me. And um, she she said yes and she just said thank you that I like your essay, you know. But that was enough. That was enough. So and now
1: she knows it was you that gave her the little wave that day. That's
0: right. Yeah. And and I think the important part and what's funny now is of course I have now been I have now become the writer that people come up to and say, Your work meant a lot to me. You know, and I know what it feels like now to be on like both sides of that situation and and the the realization i came to the, the reason i didn't talk to alice Monroe is i realized that like the, the 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 most powerful exchange that we would ever have would be on the page that i feel always that the best thing i have to give you is through my writing and i don't mean like if you're my friend or you're my son or daughter i mean if if when it comes to like absorbing the work or, or or you know experiencing the work, there's nothing else I can say on top of tiny beautiful things, or on top of wild, or on top of Torch or on top of any essay I've written, that I've actually left everything on the page, mm. and that is what everything that Alice Monroe has to give me, she already gave me, and that's why I gave her a wave. Mm,
1: that's so beautiful. Before I let you go, I just have to tell you something I haven't mentioned yet, which is that I actually met you at the premiere of WILD years ago, and I think we had a little bit of a conversation like that, where I was sort of asking you about the process, and, and you were saying, well, you know, I don't have anything to add because I told the story. Wow. Um, and yeah, I love that we've come full circle. Isn't that cool? It's so cool. So did
0: you did you interview me? Or? Yeah,
1: we met for a minute. It was on the red carpet, so it was crazy.
0: Wow. But I remember it, yeah. That is so, that's that so cool? sweet. The, the red carpet in LA? Yeah. Do you remember my family was there? My daughter was actually in Wild. She played the yeah, young me. Yeah, Bobby, right, yeah, yeah. yeah. She was wearing a suit, because she, at, at that age, all through her childhood, she was like, Refusing ever to wear a dress, I, I was like, we get to go on the red carpet and wear a fancy dress. And she's like, I'm not wearing a dress, you know. So she wore a suit, a boy's suit. She was like the style icon of How the evening. Oh cool! <laughs> yeah. But that was so fun. That's such a treasured night. I love too that I, that I said that same thing. I mean, I do think that, that sometimes when it comes to artists, we do think like, okay, now you know they have to say that special thing to us or like make like make something. Make it better or bigger or more, and I I always turn back to the work, mm. you know, whether it be in any art form—a painter, an actor, a dancer—that it's like that. That is where that is like the 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 pure distilled heart of what I have to offer in a public sense. But
1: people love love your stories so much that they just want more. Well,
0: yeah, <laughs> and it's fun to give more. Like this is fun, and this is more, right? Yeah. But in some kind of, like, pure way. Yeah. You know, it's like, no, just, you know, absorb that piece that I made. Let the work live and speak for itself. Yes. Though I've never let anything speak for itself. I'm always... I'm always speaking. (laughs) Well, I am so grateful that you
1: are such a thoughtful, brilliant speaker. And it has been such a pleasure and an honor to have you on the podcast. Thank you, Cheryl Strayed.
0: Oh, thank you. It's been really so wonderful to talk to you. So thank you for having me on. Thanks for being here.
1: Thank you for listening to 20 Questions on Deadline. For more episodes, subscribe on Spotify or Apple Podcasts